Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. And action. Welcome everyone to the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today we will be looking at the Christmas classic from 1947, It's a Wonderful Life. With me are Ken. Look daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. And Ted. Remember Eric, no man is a failure who has friends. And I'm of course Eric. I wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog. Ted, give us the details of this uh Christmas classic. And before we go any further, everyone, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. We're hoping this holiday season is joyous and festus, festive, festivus. I can't talk today from everyone. Happy festivus to the rest of us. That's right. Please not be that. It's a Wonderful Life is directed by Frank Capra with a screenplay by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra. It was based off of the novel The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Dorn Stern. It has a running time of 131 minutes. It was released December 20th, 1946. It had a budget of $3.8 million and a box office gross of $3.3 million. It's a Wonderful Life stars Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey, Donna Reed as Mary Hatch, Lionel Barrymore as Henry F. Potter, Thomas Mitchell as Uncle Billy, Henry Travers as Clarence, Beulah Bondi as Mrs. Bailey, Frank Phelan as Ernie Bishop, Ward Bond as Bert, Gloria Graham as Violet Bick, H.B. Warner as Mr. Gower, Frank Albertson as Sam Wainwright, Todd Carnes as Harry Bailey, Samuel S. Hines as Pa Bailey, Mary Treen as Cousin Tilly, Virginia Patton as Ruth Dakin, Charles Williams as Cousin Eustace, and Sarah Edwards as Mrs. Hatch. What do critics think, Ted? It has a critic score of a certified fresh and 93%. It has an audience score of 95%. It's pretty universal. There's really no negative critics that I could find. I am actually found two critics from back in the day, from 1946. And then I'm, I've got one here from Roger Ebert. Kate Cameron from the New York Daily News, her review was summed up with, while it isn't the best picture to come out of Hollywood this year, nor is it Capra's masterpiece, it tells a good story and its conclusion has a heartwarming effect on the audience. Jack D. Grant from The Hollywood Reporter, he summed up his review, It's a Wonderful Life is a wonderful title for a motion picture about which practically everyone who sees it will agree that it's wonderful entertainment. So Roger Ebert included It's a Wonderful Life in his Great Movies book. He summed up his review with this. What is remarkable about It's a Wonderful Life is how well it holds up over the years. It's one of those ageless movies like Casablanca or The Third Man that improves with age. Some movies, even good ones, should only be seen once. When we know how they turn out, they've surrendered their mystery and appeal. Other movies can be viewed an indefinite number of times. Like great music, they improve with familiarity. It's a Wonderful Life falls into the second category. <laughs> All right, Ken. 
It's Christmas Eve in Bedford Falls. People are praying to God to help George Bailey. George has decided to take his own life. Heaven responds by assigning the case to an angel named Clarence. Clarence is an angel, second class, who must save George in order to earn his wings. Clarence is shown flashbacks of George's life. He watches a 12-year-old George rescue his younger brother Harry from drowning. We then meet Mr. Gower. He's the pharmacist. Mr. Gower is saddened over the death of his son. George notices that Mr. Gower accidentally puts poison into a prescription meant for a young child. George refuses to deliver the medication, which causes Mr. Gower to beat the crap out of George. George informs Mr. Gower of what he did, and Mr. Gower hugs George, and George forgives him and never tells a soul. As an adult, George plans a trip around the world before going to college. He's reintroduced to Mary Hatch at a dance at the local high school. Mary has been in love with George since she was eight years old. When his father dies suddenly, George postpones his travels to sell the family business, the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan. Henry Potter, who controls most of the town, seeks to dissolve the business, but the board votes to keep the building and loan open if George runs it. George takes on the responsibility with his uncle Billy, reluctantly. He gives his tuition money to Harry with the understanding that Harry will run the business when he graduates in four years. However, Harry returns from college, married, and with a job offer from his father-in-law. George decides to keep running the building and loan. George and Mary rekindle their relationship and are married. As they are leaving for their honeymoon, they witness a run on the bank and use their honeymoon savings to keep the building and loan from going under. Under George's leadership, the company establishes Bailey Park, a modern housing development surpassing Potter's overpriced slums. Potter tries to lure George with a job for $20,000 a year for three years, but realizing that Potter's true intention is to close the building alone. So George rejects the offer. On Christmas Eve of 1945, the town prepares a hero's welcome for Harry, who was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions as a U.S. Navy fighter pilot, preventing a kamikaze attack on a troop transport. Uncle Billy goes to the bank to deposit $8,000 of the building and loans cash. He taunts Potter with a newspaper headline about Harry, but absentmindedly wraps the envelope of cash in Potter's newspaper. Potter finds the money and keeps it, while Billy cannot recall how he misplaced it. With a bank examiner reviewing the company's records, George realizes a scandal and criminal charges will follow. George berates Uncle Billy and takes out his frustration on Mary and the kids. George appeals to Potter for a loan, offering his life insurance policy as collateral. Potter tells George he's worth more dead than alive. Potter refuses to help and even phones the police. George flees Potter's office, gets drunk at a bar, and prays for help. Kind of like how we all do. Suicidal, he goes to a nearby bridge, but before he can jump, Clarence dives into the river and George rescues him. When George wishes he had never been born, Clarence shows George a timeline in which he never existed. Bedford Falls is now Pottersville, which is occupied by sleazy entertainment, venues, crime, a pawn store, and weird people. Nobody knows George, even. Mr. Gower is now in prison for manslaughter, as George had not been there to stop him from accidentally poisoning the prescription. George's mother does not know him. Uncle Billy is institutionalized after the building alone failed. Bailey Park is a cemetery where George discovers Harry's grave. Without George, Harry had drowned as a child. The troops aboard that transport ship were killed. George finds married, now an old maid, and when he claims to be her husband, she screams for the police and George flees. 
George races to the bridge and begs Clarence for his life back. The original reality is restored, and a grateful George rushes home to await his arrest. Meanwhile, Mary and Billy have rallied the townspeople, who have donated more than enough money to cover the missing money. Harry arrives and toasts George as the richest man in town. Among the donations, George finds a copy of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, a gift from Clarence, with a note assuring him that no man is a failure who has friends, and thanking him for his wings. When a bell on the Christmas tree rings, George's youngest daughter, Zuzu, explains that it means that an angel has earned his wings. George realizes that he truly has a wonderful life. The end. So it took a dark turn where they had had Harry drown. So they drowned. They actually drowned Harry? The kids didn't like him. He was so annoying. No, 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 no. I'm going to have to listen to this episode because I swear you said instead of pawn store, you said porn store. Porn store. So I no, think I said you pawn. said I think you said, I said porn. Sounded like porn. Store. I'm gonna listen to this one. Such a child. <laughs> and then, and then they I'm actually gonna Harry. say I'm, I'm such a child. <laughs> so they drowned. <laughs> I needed that laugh. I always wonder what's a drug is doing with poison anyway. Why is it like just right in the open for you to? Yeah, just, like, you know, oh yeah, it make poison. that. Yeah, yeah he, he tastes takes it. it. Oh yeah, I yeah. Know poison oh, yeah, 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 it's poison. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it was iocane powder from Maybe uh, it's cocaine. Bride. Who knows, right? I don't know. Well, thank you for that, plot, Ken. So, it's going to be a tough one, but let's see if we can answer it. Do any of us remember the first time we saw this movie? Ken, we'll start off with you. Only to say it was definitely as a child, probably in the 70s, late 70s. It would have to be post-76, obviously. And Ted, do you remember? Did you see it in the theater first run? <laughs> I have seen it in the theater. Wow. Um, All right. It's out of the theater right now, so go see it. Is it really? Yes. If you can catch it at the Music Box in downtown Chicago. How about um, it? They show it every year along with uh, White Christmas. That would be really cool to see this movie in the theater. It was really an amazing thing. But as far as the first time, you know, as it was on all the time when we were kids. NBC would show it like three or four times during the Christmas season. It was everybody, and, not just NBC. It was every channel that you could get yeah, played this and, multiple times. I mean, it's hard to pin down exactly the first time I saw it. You know, when I was a kid, this wasn't like my favorite movie. But I do remember this, though. I know Ken had mentioned before about how this became public domain. And when we got our first VCR... This was one of the movies that we got. I can't remember if it came with, like, soda. You had to buy so much soda or something, and you got a VHS copy of the Ten gallons of gas at Shell. It was something like that, yeah. I just remember my mom and dad being that this was something that we had to get because they liked the movie. Screw the soda. I want the movie. Pretty much. All right. So, yeah, I remember that distinctly as a kid. This is one of the first VHSs that we got. Well, for me, I have no idea when I first saw this movie. Uh, I own a copy of it, obviously, and it's uh, definitely one that myself and probably 90% of the country watches during the Christmas season. This is an interesting movie uh, for me for the fact that it's one of the few movies out there that I think actually has a very well-done colorized version. Mm. I'm going to ask it. I'm sure the answers are going to be unanimous, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you prefer the colorized version or the black and white? Ken? I prefer the black and white just because, well, first of all, we have to deal with the fact that Jimmy Stewart is not in his 20s at any time in this movie. And you're playing him off being 
18 and 22 and so and so and it just makes everybody's age a little bit closer it looks like they even give him a little bit of gray towards the end of the movie on the side of, of his hair it looks more gray so i think black and white works much better and for whatever reason for me donna reed is just stunning in black and white not that she doesn't look great in colorized version but black and white there's just something very elegant and, and beautiful about that. And it just makes certain things like the house where they're throwing the rocks at, which actually Donna Reed herself threw that rock to hit the window. She actually played baseball when she was younger. <laughs> and so she had a good arm to throw a baseball. So throwing that rock and hitting that window, that was that was all her. But stuff like that, though, the scene with the house, it just brings something special to it. More like you're in a dream, watching a dream happen. And I think that brings a little bit more to the table than a colorized version would. Ted, your thoughts? I despise the colorized version of this movie. I've watched it, I think, twice. Don't hold back, Ted. Tell us how you really feel. I'll never watch it in color again. Why Um, is that? For me, this movie means a lot to me on so many different levels that I'm kind of protective of it. It's kind of like, what if they would have colorized Casablanca? They have. It's like, How's it yeah, look? Okay. It's okay. Some movies just shouldn't be tampered with. And I know that this is a public domain movie, and that's why they've... Well, not anymore. They, they colorized it so the colorized version wouldn't be. It just takes something away from the movie. In the review that I had mentioned that's in the book in Roger Ebert's Great Movies, he mentions this too, that he does not like the colorized version. I agreed with him 100%. It's kind of like what Ken said. When it's in color, it just takes away some of the magic of the movie. There's something about the black and white movies that makes me feel nostalgic. It takes me into a better place. Some movies are that way. I will say this. The colorized version that we get to see now on the Blu-rays is much better than what Ted Turner came out with when it originally came out. Terrific. That was horrid. I mean, oversaturated colors. Colors bleeding into other colors. It was just a mess. The colorized version for me is washable, but I agree with Ted. There's magic that's left out when you go from black and white to color for this type of movie, especially when we grew up, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s with just the black and white version. That's what we know, and uh, to see something different, I mean, I, I was watching it just the other night and saying to myself, it's not bad, but I just know. I just you watched it the I, color version? I watched the color version just to, just, see, just, give it a just shot. to get yeah. another perspective on it. And that's what I was saying earlier about the Donna Reed situation. Because when I'm watching It's a Wonderful Life in Black and White, I'm like, ooh, Donna Reed. And not saying I'm not back there, really Tiger. like that. I'm not saying I'm like that during the colorized version, but there is something that's missing. The color is just off. It's not like we see color in the Ten Commandments or we see color like we see in movies today. We've talked or about in Gone color. with the Wind. Or gotten one like we talked about in the haunted palace when we had that episode how color right. pops and stuff. The color does not pop in these movies. No, it's, it doesn't. It's very bland. It's very pale looking. Like I said, they do a much better job of not oversaturating the colors and not letting them bleed into other colors. But at the same time, it's stale looking. Is probably the best way I. But can the say. movies, the movies you mentioned from the era before, were all movies that were shot in color, shot in Technicolor. This movie being shot originally in black and white is a colorized version. You're going in with the negative 
filling cover color in after right. the fact, which is sure. very hard to do. We, we saw Ted Turner's fiasco from the 80s. You hit it right there. They were so oversaturated <laughs> with color, they weren't even watchable. It was a travesty. It's like somebody this, took a crayon and, well, and started yeah, coloring or just, it. Or just took like a see, Sharpie. And, my wife, when we watch it, she will not watch the black and white version. I have to watch the colorized version with her. So I've kind of grown accustomed, accustomed to watching it. Now, I agree with you guys. I prefer the black and white. When I watched it this week, it was all black and white. But as colorized movies go, I would say the restore version of the colorized version they've done for the Blu-ray obviously helps out a great deal. And it is very watchable. I know many people, not just my wife, but many people that will not watch a movie if it's in black and white. So they are pretty much losing out on all of those movies from the era. Mm-hmm. They don't even yeah. touch them just because they're black and white. And My a wife lot is of like people... that. Except for this movie. She'll watch this movie for black and white, but all other black and white movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and other black and white movies that I adore, she won't watch it. She tried to watch Casablanca with me not too long ago. And wow. She, just, she says, it's black You know, a lot of really people don't even know that there's a colorized version of this. That doesn't surprise me. Right. And I think it's a lot maybe goes to the quality of the filmmaker. Frank Capra, let's be perfectly honest, is one of the great movie makers of all time. So everything that was set up for this movie is known that it was going to be in black and white. And so the makeup and everything is all coordinated to make them look as good as they can possibly look in black and white. So when you artificially add color, it doesn't necessarily work. And I remember that period of time in the 80s where they started to colorize what you guys were talking about, where they started to colorize black and white movies. And I just remember being absolutely horrified by you and everyone else by some of, by some of that stuff. Oh. Things being in color, that is what made a movie like Gone with the Wind so special. That's what made The Wizard of Oz so special, was that those movies were in color back in 1939. But they were and, originally shot in color. But they were That's shot the in whole color. thing. Exactly. They were shot in with a color camera, whereas It's a Wonderful Life was not. And Frank Capra had the particular type of camera and the aspect ratio and everything, and the, the lenses were all set to maximize everything in black and white. And so when you add color to it, it just doesn't have the same feel. And I know that there are people, and I'm sorry that both of you guys have people in your life that are that way. My wife is definitely not that way. Well, she Um, likes horror movies like she does. The black and whites are the the classics. I've never known anybody that's had, until I met you guys, that had somebody in their life that had this this I know many people. Many people. And that just has always been shocking it's, to me. Yeah. If it's black and white. It's shocking. So, so they're not even watching old black and white TV shows. Right. See, they're, I don't get that. They're like, if it's not color, I'm not going to watch it. That means they've never seen an episode of I Love Lucy? Or, yeah. I mean, holy smokes. I mean, Or they have, but they're just like, you know, whatever. Do you guys remember when Nickelodeon first started and they did Nick at Night? They were showing all of the old Leave it to know. Beaver and stuff like that. I mean, I remember watching... Back when I used those. to like Nick at night, yeah. Uh, sure. and you know what? You and, know what? The and now funny they're thing showing is, like stuff from the 2000s, which the is disturbing. Shows, and I'm drawing a blank. You just said I Love Lucy. It's originally black and white, but then mm-hmm. you know they had the Lucy show that was right. in color. She looks so weird in color because yeah. we're so used to seeing her in black and white. Well, I think that reflects more to us because when we were kids, 
the reruns for our I Love Lucy, so all we saw was black and white. We didn't know that there was other Lucy shows after the fact until we got older. And then, of course, cable TV comes along and you have all these different channels and all these other places playing the different Lucy shows. You're right. When we see her in color, it has a reverse effect, like with somebody who likes color but doesn't like black and white. For somebody like us who likes black and white, and then we see that same type of character in color, we're like not interested. I lost interest because it wasn't the black and white I Love Lucy. It was, well, first of all, it's an older Lucy, but it, like you said, it just looks kind of weird to me. For people that I know that can't watch black and white movies, there's something about it being in black and white that doesn't connect. They lose that connection. It's like the story doesn't come to life for them. I feel bad for them. We'll have Limit a hooked on movie support group for those who can't watch movies in black and white. So, there you go. Let's move on here. I'll ask uh, the most obvious question. Is It's a Wonderful Life a Christmas movie? It's not just a Christmas movie. It's a drama that has many layers that's set during the Christmas time frame. You could take this movie and remove the Christmas theme and you still have the same type of movie. If it's not set in Christmas, you have a guy who's struggling, lost a bank deposit, wants to take his life because he's worth more dead than he is alive to people financially. And you can have a guardian angel that comes down and writes the ship. It doesn't have to be Christmas. This movie could be set at any time frame. Where It's just got the Christmas dressing on it. So in my opinion, is it a Christmas movie? Yes. Does it have to be watched only at Christmas? Heck no. In fact, when we're recording this, we're in October. We're at the beginning oh, of October. Yes, no, we're telling you. No, you can't give that away, we're, Ken. We're, we're giving that away because I will tell you something that shocked me. Watching it a couple months before Christmas, I bawled my eyes out both times I watched the film. I was that moved, and it didn't have to be in the Christmas season for me to be moved by this movie. And I've seen this movie many times before this, and I'm already kind of giving you guys a spoiler alert on my review. Watching it in October is going to raise my review because this movie can appeal to any of us at any given time. If you okay. are down and you are out and it's April, put in this movie. This movie is a movie you can watch any time of the year. Well, let me ask you this. Prior to the month of October, had you ever watched this movie outside of December? Yes, I had watched it outside of December before. Okay. Ted? Yeah, I've watched this movie outside of December before. It's associated with Christmas because that's when all of the stations would show it. As a Wikipedia day. calls it a Christmas fantasy drama film. Yeah, and I get that. <laughs> there is a lot of Christmas here involved. But as far as like what Ken was saying, there's so many themes to this movie that any particular season, but I'll even take that a step further. This is a movie, you could make this movie at any given time as well. This movie could even take place in present day, where you could make this very same, almost identical movie. Because I think the story is timeless. And there's so many different levels to the story. It's a story of a man who feels that he's lost everything. That's a really timeless tale to tell. I think there's a lot of themes here that don't necessarily jive along with Christmas. I think that you have a case here of a Grapes of Wrath type of story that's more family palatable. It's rich versus poor type of a battle where you have the average 
working family against the rich oligarch that's trying to take over the town. That's a huge theme of this movie that really doesn't ever get a lot of airtime. George Bailey's fight against Potter is a classic everyman tale against the super rich. That's another theme that can has could and has been told in modern day. I think that on a certain level, and I mentioned the Grapes of Wrath, George Bailey is almost a Tom Joad type character where his struggle for the middle class is a powerful tale. And I think that's also what makes this a uniquely American movie. Other countries might not understand because they might not have the rich middle class that America once did. I mean, that's what George Bailey's fighting for. I think there's a lot of things here that are at play that really make this such a an emotional movie-going experience. But for me personally, my struggles with depression and thoughts of suicide, this movie hits extremely close to home for me. It's powerful. I get what you're saying, Ted, because... I mean, the movie starts off with people praying for right. George Bailey. And right off the bat, I'm getting teary-eyed because of people that are caring for this individual right at the start of this movie. There's this eagerness from these people, which this is a beautiful thing. And then we, we get to go up to the heavens and we get to see, which is probably the hardest thing to watch, to watch the stars kind of talk to each other. Granted, we're talking about 1946 technology. See, the thing about George Bailey that I like so much is I can relate to George Bailey. George Bailey has financial problems. I have financial problems. George Bailey has problems at home. He's got four kids. I got two kids, but I like it how Potter, when he tries to buy off George Bailey in his office, he offers him the 20000 for three years. I was listening to something that said that 20000 equaled out to be like two hundred and fifty grand a year. That's a lot of money. Even for us right now, that's a lot of money to be making for at least three years because he struggles. Potter says to him, they figure he makes $45 a week, which who knows how much that equals out to, but it's not a whole hell of a lot. He's like, okay, you probably could save 10 of that. But then kids come along and then you can't even save the 10. And that's how I felt. It's like when I was married, it came with a child and we struggled, but then another child comes in and then, you know, you struggle even more and you kind of go back and forth. George is great because we get to see George as a young kid with these big dreams. He's going to be an explorer. He's going to have a harem and four wives. I, I don't know what about these kids back in 1919, but you have the boys that are thinking they're going to have four wives and the eight-year-old girls are already planning out their marriages. But George has big dreams. What kid, what young adult does not have big dreams? He has dreams of being an architect. He's going to travel the world. And the funny thing is, Jimmy Stewart went to college to become an architect. There's that connection right there. There's a lot of connections in this movie. This is Jimmy Stewart's first movie from coming back from the war. His brother in the movie flew a plane like the real Jimmy Stewart did in real life. And he was on these missions where his life was in danger. And he ended up being a brigadier uh, general when it was all said and done. 
But I relate to this guy, not because of those war things, but I relate with the character here because of all the dreams that have gone by him and all the things he's given up for other things that were important to him, like his dad's business, Mary, his wife, the kids. All these things took over those other dreams. And sometimes he just looks back and wonders if he makes made the wrong decisions. I have those thoughts all the time. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my friends and everybody. But occasionally I go back and say to myself, what if I did things different? So that's how I can relate with George Bailey. And that's why this movie isn't just a Christmas movie. I agree with you guys. Everything you say is correct. It is a Christmas movie. Beaten to our head, it's a Christmas movie because that's the only time they ever show it. You never see it any time other than Christmas. And it's obviously a very Christmas-themed movie. But the themes and the other undertones of this movie, overtones, if you will, can definitely be played out in many different scenarios without even bringing Christmas into it. It's a movie that is timeless. It is one that can definitely be played in any decade from the 40s to even today and still be heavily relatable. Yeah, it's a little hokey. It's a little outdated, a little corny here and there, but it is such a phenomenal movie when it comes to its themes and when it comes to its lessons and what it teaches us. And it's a great movie by and by. Yeah, I'm kind of throwing my head in about my review too. It's just one of those movies that you watch. It's very hard not to feel good and not to feel positive and really kind of regain your faith in humanity, especially if you're having a a bad day or a bad week or hell, even a bad year. It's just one of those movies that you put on. You're like, you know what? It's going to be okay. I challenge anybody to say that there's not one aspect of George Bailey that they can't see themselves in. They say that, you know, some actors are an everyman well, actor. Unless you're Mr. Potter, then it might be a little hard. But as far as George Bailey goes, if you can't see yourself in any aspect of that character, maybe you haven't had enough introspection to look at things because George Bailey is every man, and that means every woman as well. I mean, this is why this movie is so yeah. easily connectable with right. so many generations. Right. It's timeless. But what's interesting about George Bailey to me is the fact that everything he does for other people ends up him just getting a little deeper into something that he didn't want in the first place. Like he pays a price for being good. He gives up things and he's not ever really rewarded financially, at least, right? Every time we see him getting a little bit ahead, they have $2,000 to go on their honeymoon. That's a lot of money. They give all that money up. I don't know if George Bailey ever even leaves that town. I don't know if he ever goes anywhere. But the thing, what I like about it is we see his emotions, though. We get to see that he does get frustrated that he can't go on these trips that he doesn't get ahead, that he does want to have that good life too. But at the end of the day, it comes back again to that offer that Potter makes him and he gets excited about the money, but then he thinks about what that money is going to mean. That means the building alone would go away. That means other people that depend on the building alone could suffer. And he cannot allow himself to do that. He wants to make a buck. He wants to be well off. He wants to be able to provide a lot for his family and his kids. But he doesn't want to do it at the price. At the end of the day, when it was all said and done, when he loses that $8,000, I mean, well, when Uncle Billy loses that $8,000, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to go because he's always figured out a way to get out of it. And there's just no way of getting around it. And so he does consider suicide. 
I personally can't say I've ever been that in that direction, but I've been in the direction where I don't know where my next groceries are going to come from, how I'm going to be able to pay the mortgage or rent next time. I have been in that I don't know how I'm going to make it happen situations. And somehow, I always think it's faith in God and faith in friends and family have always been able to get me through that. At the end of the day, it's his faith in all that. And that's what gets him through all these times. When he makes that speech, when the the run at the bank happens, you know how hard it would be for everybody to buy into that? You only have one guy. You have that one guy who basically took the what, the full $225. But everybody else is asking for $20. And you have the lady who asked for seventeen fifty. Mm-hmm. Fun fact about that, Frank Capra told that actress, she was supposed to say $17. But he told her to say seventeen fifty just to see what Jimmy Stewart would do. And he gives her a big kiss on the cheek. And that's an improvised moment. But George Bailey himself being able to talk the good talk, but not only does he talk the good talk, he takes his own money and he puts the money where his mouth is. And he allows people to to use his goodness for them to survive. They know he has their best interest in heart because we know Potter would never give them $2,000 of his own money to help them out. George Bailey is a person that I can relate to and also a person that I wish I could be. I agree with everything you said. I think that if you look here on a different train of thought, if this movie is made in the 80s, I think it, and it's an indictment of anybody who has lived through the era of trickle-down economics. It's a complete indictment of that entire theory. I think the movie proves there's nothing that about trickle-down economics that is even remotely true. Because at the end of the day, more people who are rich like Potter are going to keep their money to try to acquire more money than to allow it to trickle down to those below them. I can't imagine how hard that would have been for George Bailey to turn down that money from Potter. That's not a small part of this entire movie. Yeah, but you're making a a deal with the devil almost by taking that money. It is it is as close to a Faustian bargain being denied as you're ever going to see on film. Yeah. Um, because if he accepts that offer, he has signed a deal with the devil. By signing that deal, he forsakes everybody that has put their faith in him. That is worth more to him than any amount of money Potter's going to give him. The only person I can compare him to is Tom Joad. He's fighting for the every man. And George Bailey doesn't have the great speech that's at the end of the movie Grapes of Wrath where there's a guy being beat down, I'll be there. But in that moment where he turns down Potter, that's his Tom Joad moment. Everybody he's helped or put their faith in him that only took $20 that Black Monday where the stock market crashed and the banks closed. He would be forsaking all of those people and he just can't do it. And that's a very powerful moment. And that's not even to go onto the personal side. Like I said, I suffer from depression. I completely understand that standing on the bridge. Now, I never stood on a bridge, but I've been there where you don't feel like there's anything you can do and there's no way out. I've had that feeling more than once where everybody else would be better off if I wasn't here. And that's another reason, like I said, why this movie and why George Bailey means so much to me. I think that he's one of the best characters 
to have been ever put on film. One character here that we take for granted, though, is Peter Bailey, the dad. Because the values that he gets are from his dad. His dad is doing this with Potter when he's just a little boy. He's going back and forth and doing everything he can to stop Potter from taking over the town. And his son sees this. And he even tells him what a great man he is to his face on the night that he dies. Before he goes off to the dance, he tells his dad what a great man he is. He idolizes his dad. I think there's a part of him that does this not only because of the people, but because he doesn't want to let his dad down. I think it really hurt him to tell him at that dinner table that he didn't want to stay in town, that he didn't want to come back to the building alone. But once his dad died, I felt like he felt like that was his responsibility. Yeah, that's a whole other level to his character. Exactly. That's another level to his character. This character isn't just the do-gooder. That's what I like about this guy. You know, usually when we see these type of movies, the people that are this type of character, they're always just good, 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 good. Uh, They're one-dimensional. They're very one-dimensional, where he is all over the place. I mean, when he's 12 years old, and he's uh, serving Mary the ice cream with coconuts, and she goes, I don't like coconuts, and he calls her brainless. I know a lot of people don't like coconuts. I'm a big Almond Joy fan. So he lectures her where coconuts come from. He's not perfect. You know, he teases his brother at the beginning. When Mary is in her robe, and he accidentally steps on the robe, But she runs in the bush, and basically he teases her while she's in the bush that he could sell tickets. He's kind of a little bit of torturing her a little bit. But that's another side of him. That's a playful side of him. Right or wrong, wherever you may sit on this, I think it's very harmless. It's good-natured fun. I think it's good-natured fun, too. I don't think he means anything by it. But then when he goes to her house to pay a visit on her, he treats her like crap. He doesn't say anything really nice to her. He even walks out, and if he doesn't forget his hat, who knows where we're going to be. But well, he's, he's a little, still, little defensive, little he's, mean. But he's still hurting. He's hurting because Harry's going to go off to mm-hmm. Buffalo or wherever and join his wife's parents' glass factory or whatever. And he's not going to be able to go to college. He's not going to be able to do the things that he wants to do. He tells and her that he's, when he's shaking her and then he kisses her. He's telling her he doesn't want to get married. He wants he wants to that life that he's always dreamt about. And he realizes once he commits himself to her, he's struggling with in being in love with her and being in love with the idea that he had as a young man. And they're conflicting each other, but he finally caves in and gives into what he really wants, and that's Mary. He knows that nobody's going to be there to take over the building alone either. So he knows he's stuck, but he's in love with Mary. But he's still coming to terms with all of that. He's a real human being. There's not very many times where you can sit there where you're watching a movie and you're like, this is a real human being that shows real human emotions and real human qualities and traits. That he actually has a real human-like arc to his story. So regarding the characters in this movie, and there are many, many characters in this movie, who would we consider the hero or heroes, and who would we consider the villain or villains? Ken, we'll start off with you. Well, you would think that it's easy just to say George Bailey's the hero. It's not and, such an easy question, is it? And, uh, yeah, that Potter is the the evil person here. But the hero that we're missing here is Mary. Mary is the glue here. If you look at what George's mom says to him before he goes to her house, 
you know, Mary's the kind of lady that will make you figure things out. And when we see that he is at his lowest and he doesn't know what to do, Mary's always there. Now, when we talked about the $2,000, who was the one that offered the $2,000? It was Mary. Mary came to the rescue. When he has his fight with Potter and he is sitting there slumped over, Mary starts singing the Buffalo Bill song and he comes over and finds out that she's pregnant. And of course, at the end of the day... Oh, he didn't. She, there, it's not the Buffalo Bill song. It's Buffalo Girls. I don't know why it's that the can, Buffalo Well, that can be taken a couple of weird different it, ways. Yeah. Okay. It can, the Buffalo Bills, the NFL team, or Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I thought it was, I didn't realize it was Buffalo Girls. I guess I've always Buffalo heard it wrong. Buffalo Girls, not Buffalo Bill. Oh, you really thought it was Buffalo Bill? Yeah. Oh, but, wow. No. Yeah. yeah, that's where I almost thought maybe even the football team even came from. Because it's right there up in by the Buffalo area, where this is this movie is supposed Stanica to be located. Falls, yeah. But anyway, Mary is singing, and he comes over, and he finds out that she's pregnant. And then at the end, who gets the town together? It's Mary. Mary gets the town together, lets everybody know that George needs their help, and she comes through from, saves him from going to jail. And when he sees everybody, he loves to see his kids, but it's Mary. It's Mary that is the reason, I think, that he's so excited to be back. I think Mary is the unsung hero of this movie. She makes him see a life that he's meant to have. And I think that's the reason why George becomes the man he is is because of Mary. I can't argue with anything that you said. When he makes a deal with Clarence that he's never been born, the thing that finally breaks him is when she's an old maid and she doesn't know who he is. And that makes him realize that his life is worth living. So I completely understand and agree with what you're saying, that she's definitely an overlooked character here. I think George is more of a Greek type of a hero, an everyman hero. He does have flaws, but she is almost a perfect character. There's two villains of this movie. It's Potter, but then it's everything Potter represents. It's money, opportunistic greed as well. Not just regular greed, just opportunistic greed. And a man who's willing to sacrifice human beings because human beings mean nothing to him other than stats on a ledger there is no humanity he only cares for one thing in my opinion he's worse than ebenezer scrooge is at the beginning of a christmas carol george is right when he's 12 and he calls him a warped twisted old man he is a horrible character but he's also a real life embodiment of that rich upper class that are opportunistic and take advantage of the position that they're in. And Potter does that time and again, even to the point where when George wasn't born, the town name has changed from Bedford Falls to Potterville. I, I like your comparison to Ebenezer Scrooge because I, I think there's a big difference here where Ebenezer Scrooge was more of a miser. He just kind of kept right. his money he didn't try to purposely go out and hurt. and hurt people. Whereas Potter, he almost finds a little bit of joy, a little like power that when he sees somebody fall flat on his face. The scene where he talks about the cab driver getting a loan for a house, he makes fun of him, he sets on his brains and the bank denied him. But however, 
comes here and if you're a buddy with the guy, you can get a loan. He doesn't look at anybody personally. He looks up for his financial gain. I say that if you take Potter out of this equation, like there's no Potter that existed, there would be something else in its place. There would be a corporation. It would be something that people would have to fight against because what does George say to uh, one of the people at when the bank uh, has a run? You're behind last year. Do you think Potter would have let that go? Corporations wouldn't let that go either. Right. Most, most of the times, they just want their money. That's where you're saying there's two types of evil. There's Potter and then there's just the world of greed. Businesses are here to make money. But there's a lot of greed here and even the townspeople. I mean, they're about ready to turn on George and building a loan because of what's going on. And understandably so. I mean, they have to protect their own self-interest. But you have that one guy. He doesn't need no 200 and something odd dollars. But I think at the end of the movie, that character actually is one of the people that actually donates money into the... Yes. I'm not going to fault that guy. I'm not going to fault anybody who was there. Of course, none of the three of us were alive on Black Monday when that happened in 1929, where banks closed. I mean, there was banks that closed on that Monday and never reopened, and people lost their savings. I had friends who, their grandparents, they didn't have bank accounts. They kept their money in their bed. Yeah, many people that generation don't trust banks. Right. Their parents and them lost everything they had. There was no FDIC. There was no protection. And you still try and explain that to them and they don't care. Because that trust was irrevocably destroyed. When I worked at the bank from 2000 to 2004, I dealt with old some of the older people who would come in and they did not trust the bank at all. And they had money in the bank. And they were constantly in fear, and we were you were told as a teller to watch out for these people and try to help them so that they didn't take all their money out of the bank. You know what They're I mean? Coming to get you, Ted. Just to watch out so that they didn't do anything that would hurt themselves. You know what I mean? It's self-interest, though. I and, mean, it's, but Potter takes it up to he does it up. Oh, level. Potter. Well, it's like George says. Everybody has to remain calm. That's real easy to say. But he does say something that's very interesting, and I think it's something that if you look at every major financial crisis that we've had, where George says, everybody's panicking, but Potter's buying. In 2022, this is where we found ourselves, and that's why we found this massive wealth income gap, where these corporations and the ultra-rich have taken advantage of the average person to the point where every time something happens that hurts the middle class or the lower class, the rich buy and they've bought up what they need to further create and monetize their own wealth even further. So I'm not going to go and blame the guy wanting his money out of the bank. I I think that's something that is really unique to that point in time. But even then, Potter's looking, he's looking to buy. He's going to be so magnanimous to everybody that he's going to pay everybody what's in their savings and checking account, 50 cents on the dollar. And he knows, though, if the bank reopens, he gets everything that they have just wish that he wasn't such a jerk about it why don't you just take half then because <laughs> that's all you're going to get the, from potter anyway was half that money i mean i'm surprised potter even gave 50 cents on the dollar to be honest with you based on what was going on potter could probably got it done it was even actually more. generous <laughs> yeah it was the one I mean, generous thing sick. he probably did that whole time frame the villain 
that I saw, besides obviously Potter, was, and you can look at it kind of maybe not as a villain or as a villain, but as we talk about it, I kind of look at it as a villain, is actually a life without George. How Clarence Mm -hmm. shows him his life, that he's never born, erased from time, and how he meant something to everyone in this town. His existence without it changed the course of this town dramatically and turned it into Potterville. So his lack of existence was almost the villain in this movie. It was, you know, the dark force that would have turned everything around. It's an interesting thing when you hear scientists talk about time travel, they talk about the butterfly effect. It's an interesting take on that particular phenomenon where if you take that one man out of this universe, everything is different. And how we all have a place. It's the back to the future effect, right? Now Biff's running the world. For our younger viewers, it can relate. Now Biff is running the world. I didn't say who my evil person was, but it was the kid with the that turns the key for the pool to open up. That's Alfalfa from Alfalfa from, from the Little <laughs> Rascals. It's actually yeah. him. It's the yeah. same actor. It's uh, yeah. Carl Switzer. I didn't realize for years that 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 was Alfalfa. I didn't realize that. I mean, He's looking for Darla. I guess he was. <laughs> and he was mad that uh, George moved in on Mary. You know, talking about Alfalfa on the pool. There, we all know the pool is still there. Yes. At Beverly Hills High School. That's pretty uh, advanced technology for 1928. Yeah, it it's advanced that technology was... for 2022. Yes, I've, it is. I've never right? been in a high school that had a pool. Had a pool underneath, underneath, the... underneath the floor. It's yeah. pretty impressive. And electric yeah. at that, too. As far as I know, it works pretty much the same way the last Turnkey. time I had... I've actually saw a more recent picture of it where they have like a basketball court and everything and... I think that's pretty ingenious. There's some really cool things about this movie. That That's one of them. They found a new way to make snow because before it was like cornflakes and it would make noise and make that crunchy sound when you walk on it. It didn't look like snow. It didn't feel like snow. It didn't sound like snow. And they came across, and I'm not sure exactly what is used to make the snow, but it got a, a technical award, Academy Award for, for the snow. And I guess this is a a way that they moved forward. I, I don't believe it's how they do snow now, of course. But for that time and era, this was revolutionary. And it looked like real snow. I mean, yeah, Trevor talks like offline. It. He's like, wow, that's not real snow. Yeah, that's not real snow. This movie was made in between the months of April and uh, July. And they major actually were heat going wave. major yeah. heat wave during that time. And they're wearing these jackets and sweaters and scarves. And that scene where George Bailey's on the bridge... That's sweat. That's not from the fake snow. That's from the heat. They actually had to give everybody a day off because of how hot it got. Everybody needed a day off from the heat. It's an incredible movie set that RKO had set up there. It was uh, a couple hundred acres. Wasn't it like a couple city blocks? It's huge. huge. They tore it all down in, I think, 1954. In the 50s, yeah. The the only thing that is uh, original that's still around is the Martini House. And how about that martini house? The front of that house, I was looking at the construction of it. I'm like, it's pretty nice looking. Well, these are not that's those shanties they're building for these guys. Right. For Bailey Park. Where did he get the money the for Bailey Park, by the way? How did, how did well, that all Well, that's because part of the building and loan part of the whole deal. The one accountant tells Potter that this man is, speaking of himself, is going to be asking Bailey, for, Bailey a for a job. Yeah. The movie preaches hope. And that things are going to get better. So in my mind's eye, George Bailey, he ends up getting rich. 
not super rich like Potter rich, but good things come to him based off of those people own the houses and everything, but he's got a stake in them. I hope that that's what happens. I actually don't think that's what happens, in my opinion. I think that this is an ongoing thing. I think uh, the cycle repeats itself on and on. Even when Potter's gone, something's there to replace Potter. But I think, though, what he learns from here is that that doesn't matter. What matters is Mary, the kids, his friends. At the end of the day, that's what the book says. You have a wonderful life as long as you have friends. So I don't think it matters if he becomes rich or not. Granted, I, I like your idea because, you know, those houses are worth twice as much as they were built for. But I don't think that is something that George cares about. I think he's realized where his riches lie, and that's with Mary. Ted, tell us about your favorite scene in this movie. My favorite scene in the movie. That's tough. There's so many that bring real emotion to me. The one that means the most to me is at the very end of the movie. And that's what gets me every time. And that was my line that I read at the beginning. It's, remember, George, that those who have friends are never poor, or however it goes. It's his brother raising a glass to him, even though he's a war hero, won the Congressional Medal of Honor, and everybody's there. It moves me like few other scenes and inevitably every time i watch it it gets me teared up and it's a genuine emotion and like i said before a lot of that's personal having suffered from the depression to have to see that outpouring of friendship and love it means so much that's my favorite scene my wife's favorite scene is the dance-off and them falling into the pool. She really enjoys that section. She'll sit down and actually watch just that section and then get up and do what she's going to go do. Ken, how about you? It's really tough. There's just so many wonderful scenes in this movie and just scenes that make me cry and make me think. But I go back to one of the scenes I talked about earlier where George is talking to his dad and lets his dad know how wonderful he is. It makes me think when my dad passes away that he has that same knowledge that George shares with his dad. Makes me tear up a little bit because that's just a beautiful moment between a son and his father. After that, probably just because it's Jimmy Stewart's favorite scene is the one with Clarence. After the bridge, after they drop in and they're kind of warming up and they're having their conversation and Clarence is basically telling him how he's an angel second class. And the guy that works in there, he's just like, He's like losing it. He falls over. He yeah. falls off his chair and has to run away. And But George, he goes from not wanting to commit suicide for not wanting to ever be born. It's just a range of emotions. I, again, this is why I like George Bailey is we see him get angry. Now that I think about it, this is probably my third favorite. My second favorite is after he leaves, I think, his mom's house when she doesn't know who he is. And they go that close up on his face where he's like scared. And what is he scared about? That this is truly happening. What about Mary? And you could just see the look of fear on his face. It shows the great range of Jimmy Stewart. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is probably still my favorite Jimmy Stewart movie of all time. It's in my top three. But as far as an acting performance, this might be better. The range of motions that he has to show throughout this movie is amazing. Whether it be happy, sad, angry... Uh, relieved, all those emotions that we all go through in our life, they're on display right here from Jimmy Stewart. 
yeah, so it's really hard to pick one particular scene because I could say, how about this scene and how about that scene? That's because he's got such a wide range in this movie. Very interesting. My favorite scene is where the pharmacist is beating the hell out of him. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. That's not my favorite scene. Um, this is why Eric doesn't have kids. <laughs> that's why I don't have kids. My favorite scene in this movie I is... I wasn't expecting you to I know say you that. weren't. That's why I said it. My favorite scene is when um, the town comes together and turns uh, that old house into a honeymoon suite for him. The expression he gets when he walks in there and he says, he's looking at this place going, what the hell is going on here? House is just leaking water and it's just falling apart. You know, then he looks over to the bedroom and he gets like that double take. He's like, oh, two set of shoes there. Where's the other shoes come from? I mean, I understand he was late, but (laughs) let's hope that's not the case. I, I like the scenes you guys mentioned, obviously, but I always think that scene is kind of endearing you know to show how his friends really you know after his unselfish act the town does an unselfish act for him which i thought was really 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 good i wonder how they got that house all fixed up Uh, granted it was never fixed up perfectly but that thing was in shambles because they kept throwing rocks at it they make it seem like she did all the work i know right i mean she's putting up wallpaper wallpaper and and yeah (laughs) so they kind of gloss over how much work really needed to go into that pearl house i guess they lived with ma bailey while that was all going on because i'm guessing there's no way they could have stayed in that house i'm guessing because she always wanted to live in that house so i'm wondering exactly i'm wondering if she was doing all this behind the scenes because there was no intention for them to come back to this house that night because they were going on their trip they were going on their honeymoon so what Mm -hmm. i'm thinking here is she already had these two rooms done and she was already working slowly to get this house built up Mm -hmm. he had no knowledge of this house maybe she maybe she already bought the house as a surprise i don't know that's a hell of a surprise Uh, surprise here's a decrepit house yes Remember yeah. that house that you threw rocks at? You know, that's yeah, the whole town it. throws rocks at. <laughs> we got our favorite scenes, and I, I thought we were going to duplicate, and maybe someone's going to pick the same one, but we all picked different scenes, which is nice. So let's wrap this up with our reviews of the movies. I'm going to kind of guess that we all have pretty positive reviews by the way we've been talking about this one, almost bursting into tears at some points in this review. It's a pretty emotional movie for you guys. I can definitely tell that. So... Why don't we kick it off with Dead? This is a top 25 movie for me. When I tell people that this is one of my favorite movies, I usually get the eye roll or, oh, you like Christmas movies or whatever. But the movie works on so many other levels for me, like I've said throughout the podcast. And it has a very personal meaning to me. The whole idea of having friends... I'll be perfectly honest, I've had friends throughout my life, but I've never had friends like you guys, and that means a lot to me. People that I can actually be myself with, that's always been something that's been hard for me, and I sympathize with George Bailey a lot. So this movie is intensely personal, having suffered all these years with depression and the thoughts of suicide and not being good enough for people to be better off without me. I sympathize with that. To see that on this, I agree with Ken. I think this is probably Jimmy Stewart's best acting role. As far as acting goes, 
he brings this character to life and makes this a tangible person and not just a figment on a on a screen in celluloid. This is a movie I watch around midnight on Christmas Eve every year, and it's a ritual thing. It's a movie that I'll pick up and I'll watch it at any time during the year as well. I know we talked about it at the very beginning of the podcast about if it's a Christmas movie and if you've watched it any other time. This is a movie that I'll watch at any time. It also has, with another friend who no longer lives in Illinois, seeing it at the movie theater at the music box with them was one of my favorite memories. It means a lot. While just on a movie level, I would still be an A+, for me, everything else on it makes it an A+, as well. I don't understand people who don't like the movie. I would have to really under have to understand what they don't see, because to not be able to see that these are real-life characters, and they're real-life people, I just have a hard time not seeing that. That's how I feel about the movie. Okay, that's that's cool. Well, you guys are going to love my review. You are just going to love this. So how am I going to kick this one off? You're probably going to think this is going to be a backhanded compliment. All right. So I'm I'm going to be blunt when it comes to the acting. I think Jimmy Stewart is a very one-dimensional actor. I'm going to be honest. I think he's almost a caricature of himself. He's not my favorite actor. I like him, but I think he's... Very good in this movie, but he's very one-dimensional. I think the rest of the cast is also very one-dimensional and a little hokey. Maybe it's the era. I don't know. But with that being said, I think that the movie itself is incredible. Now, you're probably asking yourself, you just slammed it. Why are you saying it's incredible? Here's why. This is a movie, I'm, I'm going to compare it to Goonies and why I'm saying this. So Goonies is a movie that I watched when I was a kid, and I love. And I watch it now, and I think it's tolerable. It's not great. This movie, I watched when I was a kid, and I loved it. And I watch it now, and I love it. It doesn't change. It is the same movie I saw then, with 10-year-old eyes, and a 10-year-old mind, and a 10-year-old comprehension. And I'm seeing it now with those same eyes as a only oh good 48-year-old man. The movie is timeless. The message is timeless. It is one of those movies where you sit down, you can't take your eyes off of it. You hit it right there, Ted. I can't understand people that don't like this movie. The movie has such a positive theme that you just get sucked into it. It's just that movie that you can't take your eyes off of, and you have to watch it. Short of me saying the acting is one-dimensional and that. It's very hard for me to find anything else that's bad about this movie. I love the way it's put together. I love the theme of this movie. I love the flow of the movie. I love the ending of the movie. It is a great movie. It's a movie that could probably be remade today, but it wouldn't have that same effect. I don't think you could remake this movie and have the same positive effect. It's hard for me just to put in the words of how I feel about it. That's why it sounds like I'm kind of babbling here. It's a movie that is so of the era, so goody two-shoes. I don't know how else to say it. It's a family movie that a movie that a family can watch together and really get around. 
And I'm like you, Ted. I watch this movie two or three times a year, probably more than that, probably two or three times in December. It's part of the Miracle on 34th Street collection. It's part of all the other Christmas movies of the era. But by far, this one is probably, if not number one, number two. It's right up there. I know why I love this movie, but there's just parts of it that just drive me mad. Don't hate me, Ken. I know. I'm dissing your man there. With all that being said, with all me babbling endlessly about this movie, I give this thing an A-. And I only give it an A- just because I think it's a little one-dimensional in its acting. With everyone. Jimmy Stewart, the whole cast. That's just my feeling. This is the oldest movie we've reviewed, correct? No, No, Casablanca. So you can kind of see, you know, some of the classics. A lot of the classics are just incredible movies. And this one is right up there with them. Ken, do we even need for you to give your review? Because I'm sure it's an A++++++, but go ahead and tell us what you think. Yes, and on top of that, we will say that our next few movies that we'll do will be actually older than this one. So we'll be hitting some classics, and we'll we'll share that with you after this review here. Some of the things I would like to share, though, before I really hit the review, um, some of the scenes that we didn't talk about, like when Uncle Billy leaves the party the way after... Um, George's brother gets married and he goes off and it looks like he's drunk and doesn't know which way to go. He stumbles into some trash cans. Actually, that was not trash cans. That wasn't even in the scene. What had happened was when Uncle Billy had left that scene, prop guy dropped a bunch of props. And the actor who played Uncle Billy ad-libbed the, I'm okay, I'm okay. And actually, Jimmy Stewart was laughing at the whole situation. So that was unscripted. That's a little fun fact that I wanted to throw in there because we we didn't talk about Uncle Billy much. Capra gave the guy 10 bucks. Yeah, Capra gave the guy extra money for, for improving it. Yep. For improving the film. Jimmy Stewart was very nervous about making this movie. He, of course, just came back from the war. He wasn't even sure if he was the same actor he was when he left. And Lionel Barrymore, who we've kind of ripped his character of Mr. Potter throughout this movie. But Lionel Barrymore is one of the great actors of this generation. Jimmy Stewart reached out to him to ask him about him as an actor. To get almost like vindication that he should be in this role. And Lionel Barrymore let him know that he was that capable of an actor. And I just think it speaks worlds of Lionel Barrymore. He's kind of like our Darth Vader, right? He's like the evilest guy probably up to this particular time of uh, characters. And funny thing is Lionel Barrymore will be in a movie that we're going to review next. You can't take it with you, with also with Jimmy Stewart. Lionel Barrymore is the great uncle of Drew Barrymore. Right. How about that? The Barrymores have a big acting family. We'd, we'd even talk about who was even up for these parts. Cary Grant was up originally for this part, but because... It took so long to uh, make the movie, and once Frank Capra got his hands into it, the only person that Frank Capra wanted was Jimmy Stewart. They wanted Jean Arthur, who was also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but she was on Broadway at the time. I think Ginger Rogers was one of the other actresses that they had considered for the role of Mary, but they ended up with Donna Reed, who was only 25, and this was her first movie. I think she's beautiful in this. I totally disagree with Eric as far as... I knew you would. A lot of characters, I I will agree, but we don't need multidimensional characters when we have George Bailey, because I think he has a lot of layers. So I don't know where you're seeing the one-dimensional thing when it comes to George Bailey, because 
there's a lot of things that we see with him. I mean, he's mean to his kids when he's frustrated. Oh. Have you been, how many times have you been, you've taken your work home with you and got mad at your wife or at your kids and you know it's not their fault? We don't see that 19... in movies in 1946. We don't but see he's that in movies not 1940s mean. I want 1940s mean. He's still mean to the point where mm. his daughter is crying. He's breaking things oh, in the house. Daddy. He's, yes. he's showing his temper. He's not a drunkard. He's not beating his wife oh, and his kids. No. He should be. But at the same time, up to this point, we're not seeing the family man, the hero of the movie, be mean to his kids. If we're going to be one-dimensional, that guy is going to be nice to everybody regardless of what's happening to him. There's so many layers to enjoy in this character. Is the Blackbird going to be in any more of our movies? Yes. That bird, I think, has been around since, I want to say, since 1939. And I think he shows up in all the rest of Frank Capra's movies from 1939 moving on. The bird has a, a place in history here. As far as the review, yes. I, I do love this movie. Watching this movie reminded me, again, how great this movie was. I sometimes do a movie list, and I list these movies up and down. I rate them from 1 to like 5,000, or I'm kind of crazy like that with lists. This movie has trickled down the list throughout the years. But watching it these last couple of times made me feel something. Maybe it's because I'm now 50, and maybe because I have a different set of eyes now than I did 5, 10, 15 years ago. I definitely have a different set of eyes than seeing it when I was seven or eight years old. I loved it as a seven, eight years old, but as a 50-year-old, I have a different appreciation for it. But I still had that love for it as I did as a little kid. And that's what makes this movie what they call a timeless classic. You can enjoy it at a young age of eight, and you can enjoy it at the age of 50, and for different reasons. Agreed. Um, Jimmy Stewart is phenomenal. Donna Reed is beautiful. And not, not just the way that she looks, but the way her character presents herself. She's a strong woman who has George's back, who's there for George. The other characters, yes, they're a little bit one-dimensional, but again, they don't need to be anything more than what they are because this is about George and Mary and their fight, not only to keep a town alive, but to keep their love alive. It's an incredible movie in that aspect. This is Frank Capra's favorite movie of all time. And Jimmy Stewart will tell you this and Harvey are his two favorite movies that he ever made. This movie started off as a Christmas card, amazingly enough, and was later bought for $10,000. And the fact that this went from a very short story to becoming a Christmas icon that it is, is simply amazing. It doesn't get an A-plus for me because I reserved that only for my favorite movie of all time. And that was Casablanca. Before coming into this, I probably would have given it probably an A minus somewhere on there, but I am going to go with an A. This movie made me cry. And this movie brought emotion out in me that I wasn't expecting. And when a movie can do that, when a movie can make you feel and make you change your outlook on your life, even if it's for just five or 10 minutes, just thinking to yourself how appreciative you are. I mean, Ted was talking about how he appreciates us and he appreciates his friends and his family and even if it's only for five minutes, if a movie can do that for you for five minutes, it should be an A. And this movie does that for me. Before we wrap up here, something that's near and dear to my heart, I'd be remiss without bringing this up. It is the holiday season. This is one of the times of the year that most people find themselves in crisis. If you are in crisis, reach out 
and dial 988 to the Suicide Prevention Hotline. If you know somebody in your family that might be down or possibly in crisis, send them just an I love you or I'm thinking about you or you what you mean to me. You never know what a kind word will do for somebody. It could save somebody's life. But if you are thinking about doing harm, 988 is the suicide prevention hotline and reach out to somebody because it could make a world of difference. Yes. Well said, especially in this holiday season. It's uh, the least we can do is tell everyone that you love them. A kind word goes a long way. Well, I guess on that note, we will uh, end this podcast of It's a Wonderful Life. Ken, tell us, what movies are we going to be looking at next in our uh, series? Okay, starting in January, we're going to actually continue with Frank Capra movies. So we just did It's a Wonderful Life. But we're going to focus on three more in the month of January. We're going to start it off with the 1938 Academy Award-winning film, You Can't Take It With You, with Lionel Barrymore, Gene Arthur, and James Stewart. After that, we'll be visiting Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, also with James Stewart and Gene Arthur. And then we'll finish off that set with the 1944 Arsenic and Old Lace, starring Cary Grant. Very cool. Some classic movies there. I look forward to watching those. Ted, tell us where they can find us uh, on Twitter. We can be found on Twitter at hookedon underscore movies. And whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Good Pods, leave us a rating and review. It's always nice to hear your feedback. So just check us out and give us a listen. Listen to some of the past episodes because we truly appreciate it. Definitely. And uh, Ken, where uh, where can they find us on Facebook? You can check us out on Facebook at Hooked on Movies. Just go ahead and type that in. Ask for an invite to join the club and you can be part of our discussion. We have fun with a lot of types of movies. Uh, learn more about even this movie and other movies that we have done in the past. We try to put little articles a little bit before, a little bit after we release our podcast of a movie just to get some conversation going, but we love to talk about it. And sometimes me and Ted will argue about it, and that's fun. That's why we're here, not to argue, but to, to discuss movies. So hope you enjoy. Uh, if you have any other questions outside of joining us on Facebook, feel free to email us. You could do that at hookedonmovies at gmail.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, with some great articles out there, some great conversation and banter. Hope you will join us on Facebook and Twitter. That's all the time we have today for Hooked on Movies. As always, it's cold out there, and I'm still not wearing pants. Film at 11. See you at the movies. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter.